In the world of Hollywood, movies get greenlit and redlit. They get remade and rebooted. But we are the ideal. I'm Sam Gash, and you are listening to Ideal Remake. Thank you for listening to Ideal Remake. We take movies that either have been, will be, or should be remade and talk about what the ideal version of that remake would be. In this episode, we are putting our returning guest, Kevin Mosteller, to the test. Kevin, are you ready? I am Good. ready. Someone gives you a calfskin wallet for your birthday. How do you react? I report them to the police. Your little boy shows you his butterfly collection, plus the killing jar. What do you say? I would have him, I would take him to the doctor. You're watching television. Suddenly you spot a wasp crawling on your arm. How do you react? You kill it. Kill it dead? Kill it dead. While walking along in desert sand, you suddenly look down and see a tortoise crawling toward you. Tortoise? You reach down. Do you know what a turtle is? Yeah. Exactly the same thing. Never seen a turtle, but I know what you mean. Good. You reach down and flip it over onto its back. The tortoise lies there, its belly baking in the hot sun, beating its legs, trying to turn itself over. But it cannot do so without your help. You are not helping. What do you mean I'm not helping? Why? What do you mean I'm not helping it? You mean you're not flipping the, tor- the tortoise over. Why aren't you flipping the tortoise over? And finally, is Blade Runner a movie that has been, will be, or should be remade? It has not been. I don't think it should be either at this point. I feel like it should stand on its own. I'm sure at some point we're going to get to the place where they adapt its source material, the novel. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? But I don't know if, like... This movie is going to be directly remade, unless it's by us. It's probably fair. How well do you think you've done? Um, I feel like I passed maybe 80%. I think I got a B. 80% human? 80% human. (laughs) Which is weird, because the eye thing started blipping on me, and I'm kind of scared that you're going to shoot me from across the table here. It's such a weird test, but it's an empathy test, right? That's how it's supposed to work? Yeah, it's supposed to be an empathy test, yeah. Which is crazy, because then the whole rest of the movie is establishing that uh, replicants have empathy. Right. That, well, that they learn. It's like a learned thing, right? Right. Like, but that's true of humanity in general anyway. I mean, humans mm-hmm. don't really start having empathy until they're older than four years old. Exactly. Exactly. And I feel like that's the kind of the one of the, one of the many layers of this movie is yeah. that these androids have the capability to learn, but they... The suppression of them is they don't want them learning because I'm sure uprising, uprising and yep. there goes humanity. And but also it's like once they have the ability to learn and once they start becoming good people, then they die. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, because toddlers are the worst. They are. They're monsters. They are. And if you look at these guys, these characters, they are. They are like toddlers. They're running, just big, strong toddlers that can't feel pain, <laughs> which is a pretty terrifying monster. Actually, it really is. Yeah. So tell me about how this is like, what, the fourth time you've been on the podcast? Yeah. Because I don't think we can ever do an episode where you don't do then another episode within a month. That, that's how it works. Yeah. Good. Yeah. All right. It's I, I feel like I've been promoted to recurring role. That's I believe so. Sweet. I think so. Hey, yeah. Hey, hey, bump and everything. All right. Why Blade Runner? Because this was originally, because you reached out to me to do this episode. What What was the impetus behind that? The impetus behind that is because here we are in sunny Los Angeles in the year 2019. In the month of November, which means Blade Runner is is happening right now. Yes, as 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 you know, movies dictate our future, and here we are in Blade Correct. Runner. It's wild that there is a movie currently happening in the present, mm-hmm. because every time it's movies in 
near future, recent past. Mm-hmm. It's never a movie that's happening right now. Right. And that's what this is. Yeah, here we are. There are replicants running through downtown as we speak. Probably. Probably. I mean, have you checked out the Bradbury building? Because it's real cool. Yeah, it is actually really cool. Yeah. And, but there are there are lots of weird replicants. In yeah, there, and so. mannequins and other things that that dude just made. Yeah, pretty Sitting much. there with their terrified eyes. Weird, weird toy soldiers walking through the... <laughs> Um, That's a weird movie. <laughs> it, is, it, it is an interesting movie. There's a lot of layers to strip away on it. Yes. Um, so tell me when you first saw Blade Runner. So I saw Blade Runner, as, a, as I've mentioned before on this podcast, I was the, I was the video store kid that went mm-hmm. through everything. Um, sitting I, here in your They Live t-shirt. I am sitting here in a They Live t-shirt, <laughs> which is another one that I rented uh, from Blockbuster Video in probably 1994. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, actually, I had read about Blade Runner first before i'd seen the movie it there was there used to be these fanzines in the 80s late 70s early 80s one was called fangoria and mm-hmm. that was uh for horror like a horror fanzine uh they actually just came back they're just like their third publication oh um, weird their cool. third issue with us on the cover jordan peele's us um but they used to be like the all encompassing for horror movies uh that's where you get your news that's where you get your like you know, if you go to this theater at midnight in Los Angeles at this certain point, it's going to be screening Evil Dead 2 or something, right? That's um, cool. Also, alternately, for science fiction, there was Starlog, which has been out of print, out of publication for probably decades now. I There used to be this bookstore not far from my house in There's Anaheim. a certain irony to a science fiction publication <laughs> now existing purely in the past. Exactly. And what I'm about to say adds on to that because I would go buy the used ones for a buck. And the back just, copies? The back copies. They weren't even in, they weren't even being published when I was doing this. So they were all old from the past news on science fiction films. Fantastic. And uh, yeah, I remember a specific episode from like 1982 or episode issue rather sure. from, from I think it was 82 that had Blade Runner as a feature in the book. And there was a couple other things, uh, a couple other um, like heartbeats with Andy Kaufman or something like that. <laughs> and I remember Escape from New York being in it too, which is where I read about Escape from New York. Another one of my favorite movies. Another movie I have not seen. Yeah, well, if you're ever interested in remaking it, all right, I'll add it to the list. Um, so, <laughs> see you in a month. Cool. Right. No, I was going to say, have you have you read Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? I have. I have read Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. It's similar but different. It is. Um, it's not as necessarily far off as like something like iRobot. Right. Right. So but, yeah. So this one's not that different, but it is still different. It's different in terms of, um, it's very 60s sci-fi. Yeah. It's a very 60s, which Philip K. Dick excelled in. Right. Um, this movie also, like, I read it because I became such a fan of the movie as a kid. I read about it in a Starlog, rented the video. It was the original version, which there's like five different versions of this movie. Which is the version that you uh, loaned to me to watch. I loaned you the final cut, which is Ridley Scott's, like... We went through, we transferred it, we fixed some of the things that we didn't like, and this is my final vision uh, of the film. Right. Whereas it wasn't. Like, if you want to know the back history, it was wrestled from him uh, in 81 when they were filming. They were working, like, 16-hour days. Oh, no. I know, right? But uh, they were working overtime... To finish this film because there was going to be a director's strike. And they would lose Ridley Scott uh, if the director's strike 
happened, that cost them an extra $5 million over budget. So it was taken from him anyway. Got it. As a result of that, we got this goofy kind of narration that's long been omitted from the film. That's um, right. So the first version of this that I ever saw... I believe I got as a DVD from Netflix mm-hmm. when I because when I first moved to LA, it's come up a couple times on the podcast before where the movie that we're watching is a movie I first watched on my own, just trying to get caught up on cinema I never saw as a kid, sure, or when I was younger. <laughs> uh, and I feel like the version of Blade Runner that I initially saw had the narration in it. Yeah. So I think this was a different version. Yes. Yeah. This is the one that's kind of like widely recognized as like the final. Okay. Version. Because my understanding, and I'm open to being extremely wrong about this, was that this is the version that is Ridley Scott's version of the final version, mm-hmm. but then, like, the fans prefer, like, version two or something. There, I mean, there are different schools of thought. There's a lot with this. Some people really like the narration because it adds to the kind of film the noir depth and the lore. detective. That is very noir. That's true. Yeah. Like, that kind of Sam Spade thing to it. But if you listen to it, Harrison Ford is really, fun, like, purposely mm-hmm. phoning it in, hoping that they wouldn't use it. And they used it anyway. And he's he's flat the entire time. And that might sort of fit his character. A little bit. So a little uh, bit. A little bit shooting himself in the foot. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. But there and then they tacked on this really, really bad happy ending to it, which was it was footage of the shining. It was like stock footage used for the shining where they leave and there's like maybe 30 seconds in the car of Harrison Ford and um, Rachel, Sean Young. Uh-huh. And there's a narration of him going, it's very airy and bright and breezy, nothing like the city that we saw. Um, Wait, isn't that also the thing that they do at the end of Brazil? Yes. Yes, Brazil also had an alternate ending, like, tacked on to it. I, I feel like I remember it from one of them, but possibly both of them. Yeah, yeah. Of just them driving down a highway past a series of ads until finally they get past the ads and you get to see the actual... Uh, city, right? The in this the in actual landscape, I landscape. was going to say. But yeah. Sorry. But yeah, that's Brazil was that's the same thing. weird. It was... The studio took it from the creator and was like, this is way too dark. It doesn't... It doesn't... Uh, we don't want people leaving angry. Right. Or sad. Or so sad. So we're going to make it so... You know, they're not, and it doesn't work for that. It didn't fit the film tonally at no. all. You watch it, and he's got, like, this narration going like, oh, no, so this is the special replicant. Rachel is the special replicant, the one that I'm in love with, who doesn't have a lifespan of four years and will live forever as long as I do. And Which is in direct contrast to the content of the movie when Tyrell yeah. says, we tried, we tr- did everything you're saying. We, it it just didn't work. Yeah, I know. And it didn't, that's the thing is it didn't work. <laughs> the ending didn't work. So then I've seen Blade Runner 2049 and I like Blade Runner 2049. I agree with that. Do, uh, uh, which is that, which version is that a sequel to? So I, that is a sequel to this final cut. It's a sequel to the final cut because in yeah. that version, Rachel only lives the four years. Yes. Because she, is the one in the box, right? And spoiler alert, she's the one, the body in the box at the farm that they find. I've only seen... I think so, yeah. yeah. I've only seen it once, and I saw it... I went to a WGA screening of it, and there was a talk back with the two writers. So mm-hmm. the writer of the original, who's yeah. nuts. He is, absolutely. And Ham- then the uh, guy Hampton who kind Fancher? of did the, atta- the adaptation. Sorry. But yes. Yes. What was his name? Hampton Fancher. Yeah. That's a great name. Because it fits him perfectly. He is like one of those old school do old school sci-fi writers. Like in the '60s, there yeah. were these like slightly insane, like Ray Bradbury, uh, Phil K. Dick was one of them. Um, 
Harlan Ellison. He fits that bill. Like he's just those like kind of a little off. No offense to the guy. Not at all, but absolutely off. Yeah, perfect for science fiction. But yeah. yeah. Absolutely nuts. Which 2049, by the way, I do feel is one of the best uh, films of this decade. Of, of I, teens? What are we in the teens now? Ooh, well, it's, it's about to be 2020 in less than it 60 is. days. That's true. Jeez. Month and a half, <laughs> it'll be 2020. Ah, new decade. <laughs> Start of the roaring 20s. Hey. Roar. Flappers are going to come back. Yeah. <laughs> So I'm actually looking at the IMDb Pro page, and it's talking about the budget versus the opening weekend versus kind of the overall gross. Do you mm-hmm. know what the budget of this movie was? I know it was high for Warner Brothers at the time. I don't know the exact number. What's your guess? 35 mil, maybe? That's a good guess. The answer is 28 million. 28 mil, okay. Uh, opening weekend, it made 6 million. Yeah. <laughs> the worldwide gross is 41, so that's technically a flop. Yeah, it was actually widely considered a, a big bomb when it first came out. But the thing is that since then, it must have made that money back. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely yeah. made its money back. Um, it it uh, it became, it's one of those ones that became a cult classic because of home video. Right, okay. Like, nobody saw it when it came out. And I think even though it was a bomb, it got an Oscar nom for um, special effects, I think. It lost to E.T., if I remember correctly. <laughs> Amazing. Um, Nominated yeah. for two Oscar awards. Oh, two. Okay. It was uh, 1983 Academy Awards. It was nominated for Best Art Direction and nominated for Best Effects slash Visual Effects. Yeah. Okay. So that that feels right. Pretty oh, arduous I for, process. I forgot Rutger Howard died this year. He did. That's Like right. recently, within the last couple of months. Yeah. God, that's... I forgot about that. I love Rutger Howard. Yeah. I mean, he's done a bunch of things that you enjoy. Yeah, he does. <laughs> uh, oh, that's wild. Oh, that's right, because everyone was saying that, like, he died at the begin. It might have been even the beginning of this month where, in Blade Runner, he dies in November 2019, and then Rutger Howard died in November of 2019. No, it was a couple months ago. It was a couple months ago, but it was, it was really close. It was, it was either late he died in, or He September. died in the year that he died in the movie. Yeah. Which is pretty nuts. That's, that's, uh, foreshadowing for you, I guess. I uh, guess. Life works of in weird ways. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, so then, talk to me a little bit about what you had in mind for a possible remake. So for, for me, theoretically, I feel like we can pull things from the movie as it exists mm-hmm. from the book and from the sequel, because I think all of that's fair game. I agree with that. Uh, 100%. And I do feel that a lot of the themes that they subtly explored should kind of be brought open out more. Yeah. I guess, okay. Is what I'm trying to say like, like the climate change theme. Absolutely. Uh, the, there's there's a level of, of upper classes taking advantage of the working classes, which oh, is absolutely. very much what this is. Rampant capitalism. I mean, come on the the guy who owns the company lives in a pyramid. Like, there's no yeah, <laughs> at the a top literal of a pharaoh. Yeah, exactly. Um, which I guess it's a good place to die and be buried. Sure. I, I mean, doesn't have to I mean, go that's far. What the, that's what the pyramids are for, right? Just take the elevator down. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, he shouldn't have built it that way. No. Um, and there are, like, I mean, there are themes like, you know, uh, it's almost like a racist metaphor for the way that they treat these robots. Oh, it absolutely uh, um, is. I really would like to... I mean, they already have a uh, a a term of derision for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's also, like, there's even the scene where they do the first empathy test, the void conf test with, with Rachel, and she leaves the room, and he immediately starts referring to her as it. Yep. And that right there, like... I feel like that's his personal journey is, yeah. is 
kind of beating that racist detective out of him. Um, yeah. Well, sort of. Sort of. I mean, I feel like he's also learned... So, for me, when I first saw this movie, they ended up doing something that was a lot more apparent in the sequel. Because yeah. I watched the first movie by myself, on my own. I got my own interpretations from it. Sure. That had nothing to do with what was intended or whatever. It was just, well, this is the message I get from it. Mm-hmm. And the way it worked for me when I was watching was, we were trying to decide if Deckard is himself a replicant. Yes, that is one theme that I was going to bring up, actually, that it would be fun to explore more yeah. in, in uh, this remake. Right, because they certainly do that in Blade Runner 2049. They do. And it also kind of negates it a little bit, too, on both sides. Um, you're Trying still, to do the same still thing kind twice. of unsure a little yeah. bit. I left unsure, too. Well, Blade Runner 2049 confirms that Decker's human. Yes. But at the same time, he had a child with a replicant. Right. Is that possible? A human... Well, know? that's what they were saying. That's Well, that's part of the reason why the child was compelling, because it, it proves that these two are the same. Sure. And also, it's like, yeah, she also kind of doesn't have an immune system. Right, so there are pluses and Spoilers, minuses. by the way, for Blade Runner 2049. Yeah, if you haven't seen the movie from, what, three years ago now? Two years? Something like that, I don't remember. Probably 20 years ago. 20 years ago. <laughs> Two years ago. <laughs> I don't know, it doesn't uh, matter. No, but I think if we can kind of wipe all that and explore that more, that's yeah. one of the more fascinating things uh, in the original Blade Runner that the sequel kind of put the kibosh on for me. I agree um, with that as well. I feel like, uh, and I know they cobbled it together in the director's cut. The original version of the director's cut had a clip of the unicorn in it, where, where he's dreaming of this unicorn, and that right. was supposed to symbolize an implant. But the unicorn was from some other footage, some other movie, I think. They sli- Is it? They spliced it in. Oh, it may weird. Have been legend. I don't, I don't know, know that at all. But I think it'd be interesting if the the replicants are treated very very poorly uh-huh. and then Deckard similarly is treated very very poorly which he kind of is mm-hmm. yeah. i mean there's the whole edward james almost character who comes in and is like you got to go do this thing and he's like all right what are you going to do yeah i'm making you do this thing so i mean he's kind of like going around and then the edward james almost character is like enjoy the time you've got and mm-hmm. i don't i i never fully grasped who that person was and in my head that guy very easily could have been like the uh, the Fight Club, just totally in his head oh, sort of character. Interesting. I know he's not, especially because he's leaving the little origami things everywhere, right? But like, if he's kind of just always there, always watching, like, what's his deal? That's fascinating. I was going to go the other spectrum where he is the Blade Runner who is investigating Deckard. Oh, uh, that's more interesting. We'll do that. Yeah that that was kind of I the, like that better. The like almost like. I mean, I know this isn't something that we would show the audience in this yeah. remake, but almost like they had a meeting, him and the, the sergeant. I don't know, the sergeant. The, yeah, the guy the, I didn't recast because I don't care about him. Oh, he's great. I mean, yeah, probably. But the captain, we'll go with captain. I only had, a, I only had so much time for this. That's fair. Uh, <laughs> that's totally fair. Uh, so did I. So, but the, you know, it's almost like the captain called him in and is like, look, I need you to watch this guy. Like, we've got this thing that's kind of a simpler thing, but he might be part of a... a the bigger the, thing. The bigger thing that that's what you're going to be looking into while he's doing this. Right. But then Deckard retires either Roy or Zora later, and then the captain comes in and goes, you're done. And uh, Deckard's like, there's like two or three more of these. No, he doesn't say you're done. Oh, oh you mean in this like, yeah. remake? No, yeah. no, no. In the original, he did that. In he the did? one In the one I watched, and Deckard was like, no, there's three more. No, he said there's four. So he was confirming that was that was the captain's way of confirming to the audience that the, the, that Rachel was a replicant. That Rachel vanished. 
Right. Well, he, what he said was that he said, you're done. I, you got them. And Deckard's like, no, I didn't. I just got this one. And uh, then the uh, 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 the sergeant goes, yeah, but you also identified this other one who's on the run now. Huh. And so we already know about her. We'll get her soon. We already know what's going on with her. And Jeez. so so as far as I think he was concerned, as soon as Deckard took out Zora, it was over. Oh, no. and That's th- not what I... No, no the conver- that's, that's the impression I got. The conversation that he had, with, he says three more to go or something. Or it's and, like, no, he says and, four more to go. And then Deckard goes, there's only three more. And then he says, no, that one that you The one who did the runner. Got it. Is gone. Yeah, she she took off. They got vanished. It. Didn't even know she was a replicant. So it was just letting him know that, hey, you only got three more, buddy. Keep, got it. Keep going. Good job. Yeah. And then he's immediately attacked. <laughs> right, 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 right. Got um, it. Part of, I didn't do it for my recasting, but part of me kind of wanted to combine Zora and, and Leon because they yeah. kind of get taken out at the exact same time and they both kind of serve the same purpose. They do. I agree. So um, part of that plot though uh part of the plot of him being maybe he is the the fourth replicant uh is okay. that they if you know like and, and i just noticed this the first time like I'd, I'd read this theory before that zora was not a replicant that she was a person that he mistook for a replicant and he was actually the fourth replicant that they were talking about that's a good theory i like that um and they never test her they don't, and and if she you, just runs, right? And which you, why wouldn't she? Exactly, some creepo in her dressing room, right? Yeah, who doesn't identify himself as a police officer at all? At any point, theoretically, um, I feel like there should have been someone she should have gone to, and been like, "Hey, <laughs> this guy's bothering me." Yeah, exactly. It would have been interesting if that person turned out to be Leon. Yeah, then then of course, then that would have confirmed it. But yeah, that's true. They never actually confirmed that Zora is. The the only thing that confirms it for me in the movie is that Leon is really upset that he that she was killed. Exactly. That is, that is the only thing. And too. like the snake scale at the previous. The snake scale, yes. But if you, I, I know I looked this time and she didn't. When he has the picture printed out of her, she didn't have a tattoo on her cheek. And then when he shoots her and she goes running through the glass and hits the ground. The cop turns her che- her dead cheek, and there's a snake tattoo on her jaw. And I took that as like, oh, maybe that was supposed to be a... Oh, I saw that at, in other scenes, like she'd previously had Oh, it. she did have yeah. it? Oh, okay. Never mind then. Well, there goes that theory. <laughs> it's, a good, it's a good theory, but she did have it previously. Here I am, digging deep into this. No, 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 you're that... doing good. Um, the reason, part of the reason why I bring Zora up, and also because I kind of want to pull in the book a little bit more, mm-hmm. is... Kind of the origin of the title, do androids dream of electric sheep? Right. Because the book also, it's, is he a replicant or not? Yeah. Because one of the aspects of the book is that everybody in this future world has a pet. Yes. And it's almost like an elite status thing to where the size of the pet that you have is like how much money you have. And even more so, if it's real, it's even a more... Yeah. It's, I can't believe you were able to afford a yeah. real cow. You're Bill Gates, you have a real owl or a right, real cat. Right, that's the thing. You know, yeah. And so they, uh, so different people in the book have different pets. Like there's the Tyrell's owl, there's Zora's snake. Mm-hmm. And so Deckard, over the course of the book, is dreaming of owning a sheep. That's all he wants. Yes. He just wants a sheep. And if he's real, it's do android, but would he want to own an android sheep if he's an android? That sort of thing. Exactly. So is it a a question of almost slave ownership in a weird way? It is, but But. also I like the idea because kind of in the same way that like his Dark Materials Golden Compass, which Mm. I think started airing and I should probably watch, Hmm. uh, 
the animal that you choose is indicative of who you are as a person. And I like the shorthand of that, of, oh, this is the sort of thing that you like, therefore we kind of get a sense of who you are. Yeah, okay. Like Tyrell sees himself as being wise, so he got an owl. Sure. Oh, that makes sense. So Deckard would be a sheep, then. Yeah. Uh, And what do sheeps do? Follow? Just follow orders. Just do whatever they're told. Right. So eat the grass. That's fascinating. I've been reading that book since I was like twelve years old, and I did. <laughs> I never made I'm, that connection. I'm not sure that's a connection in the book. I'm I think that's something that we can use. Oh, absolutely. And I, because I, reading the book, that was something. I, I mean, I'm, I'm just like animals. Yeah, and well, same. That said, I want to avoid chances of animal cruelty, but I also think that that's a fun shorthand for the characters. Yeah, it's a great way to introduce them. Uh, which pet they own, right? yeah, or or what they're dreaming of. Detective Pikachu did that really well. Really? Well, what, I have what, not seen Detective. Well, Pikachu. whatever Pokemon you have is kind of indicative of. I don't know. I'm just making fun. Oh, okay. I haven't seen it, so I'm just gonna go. Want to borrow it? I've got it over here. Okay. It's gonna be great. All right. No, no, no. Hey, I love me some bad movies, man. So <laughs> how dare you? Oh, hey. Did, <laughs> so I'm not. Just calling this, you know. It's fine. It's fine. It's, it's fine. Not, whatever. Whatever. Um, we're done movie. here, right? Yeah. All right. Uh, but so, what are some other? So let's drill down a little bit deeper. Okay. What? So we've talked about kind of the capitalism and the environmentalism and everything. Is there anything that's kind of like at the core aspect of this movie that we haven't talked about yet? Like the. I feel like humanity is the core of this movie. Okay. Humanity and what and, defines humanity? Yes, exactly. And what, can what humanity th- be manufactured? Yeah, that that's a part of it as well. Can humanity be manufactured? What is humanity and what constitutes being human is kind of the more... Um, I'm going to quote a different movie because that kind of hit the same theme on the head from Terminator 2. Okay. At the end, she's driving and there's like, we prevented the future from happening for the first time in my life. It's like a dark road ahead of me. I don't know what to expect. The finishing words are, if a machine can learn how to be human, maybe we can too. Or something along those lines. That's a good line. It is a really good line. Uh, I'm paraphrasing. I'm probably sure. missing it. Uh, but that's kind of the theme of this movie in that really, really heart-wrenching moment at the end where our villain dies mm-hmm. and he's feeling sympathy for him. I mean, he rescued Deckard. Yeah. Deckard was going to die and uh, Roy pulled him up and said, you probably don't need to die. Sure. And I feel like that's the most human thing. I feel like he was teaching him a lesson. He never really meant to kill him. He wanted him to live in fear, which is what all the replicants at one point in this movie say. Yeah. It's quite an experience to live in fear, isn't it? Just to kind of show him what he causes, right? Like, Absolutely. Um, and whether or not Deckard is a replicant in this and, you know... Maybe he is, maybe he isn't. Maybe he is, maybe he isn't, but he still needs that lesson. I think so. That lesson of humanity, especially if he's just essentially a killing machine. It's, you know, if he is just this detective whose sole job is to retire replicants, right? Which is essentially murder. A machine whose job it is to stop other machines. Right, essentially. Although he is a human machine. Well, right? what, I mean, there's also what is the definition of a machine? It's just something that someone, someone or something that performs a repetitive task. Oh, there you go. Okay. Because that's, th- that's yeah. the definition of a, that is the definition of a machine, mm-hmm. right? Something right. It's just a repetitive task over it and over is. again. Yeah. And if that's what he is, that's all he does. Then he is himself a machine. A machine. Yeah. 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 What, an organic machine versus a 
like a bio, manufactured bioorganic bioengineered right yeah but a machine's still a machine doesn't matter what it's made out of right exactly that's very true and especially in in, in this instance where they are bioorganic they're the same right it's just you come from traditional means, whereas you come from a, a lab. Yeah, theoret- like, and theoretically, the uh, humans are able to like heal and like able to function for a while, true. but the bioorganic versions of that don't quite mesh as well, and so that's why they break down and have a shorter lifespan. Right, and one of the things that I noticed too about the replicants is uh, they all have something unique to their what they were designed for, right? Like the Leon character. Uh, they said that he was like an ammunition loader or something like yeah, that. Yeah, like he could lift 400 pounds or something. Yeah, and so it shows how strong he is. Like, he can't feel. Like, Deckard hits him a, a bunch of times and he just comes right back because he has no feeling. Right. Like, he, he doesn't feel the pain. Correct. So they're engineered for, or uh, you know, whatever task they were. The the pleasure model was Zora, right? She winds up being the stripper. Right. With a snake show. Who knows what they're doing, but it's weird. They and, made an announcement. Yeah, I know. It's an, un- <laughs> an uncomfortable announcement, but yeah. yeah. So she is basic pleasure model, et cetera, et cetera. Like they were almost programmed in a weird way to to do their jobs. Well, if they can only be around for four years, and if they come out of the mold fully formed in this shape, what shape do you make these certain people? Sure. And there was a, a moment in Blade Runner twenty forty nine where. What's the uh, bad guy Joker's name again? J- J- Jared, Jared Leto. Leto, thank you. Where Jared Leto's having this conversation with his second in command where, like, they have this plastic bag, kind of altered carbon style yeah. with a replicant in it. The person comes out, this poor woman's, like, standing around, like, she doesn't understand what's going on. He, he looks at her and then just stabs her. He's like, all right, she's dead. Cool, it's rock and roll. Mm-hmm. And it was, like, just a fully formed human just got pooped out of a bag. And then he's like, nah, whatever, dead. Yeah. And it's just... The lack of empathy and the lack of recognizing right. these other creatures as human and sentient life forms. Which I feel like is the theme that, one of the themes that is like Deckard's journey. Yeah. You know what I mean? Whereas like these machines, and that's kind of what I meant with the Terminator quote, but these machines are, they have empathy, where whereas he doesn't, right? Mm-hmm. He's referring that to them as it. He's refer you know, he views them as... What it was the line a benefit or a hazard, and if it's a benefit, it's not my problem. Yeah. So that's kind of his worldview. He has no empathy at right. all. I mean, which even boils down to the most uncomfortable scene in the movie where he's assaulting Sean Young. Right. He has no. He doesn't consider her a person. Right. He, he has no empathy for her. And which, it's not until he like goes back later and realizes he was worried if she that she was dead, and he was like, yeah. oh. I guess I'm glad you're alive. Yeah. And I do truly care for you, even though you're not like me. Right. Uh, What a novel concept. I know, right? (laughs) And then in 2049, there's kind of this, like, spectrum of poles that uh, Ryan Gosling can go towards. He can either go to the Jared Leto complete lack of empathy, or he can go towards the uh, Dave Bautista. Mm -hmm. Almost wise kind of. Yeah. Like, a being that is almost pure empathy. Right. Like, realize that... He will put himself in danger by helping, but must help because it's the right thing to do. Right. Which makes it all the more tragic that that he's only executed because of what he is. Right. Or who he is. Exactly. You know? so. David Tietzen needs more work. He does. Anyway, he's great. Yeah, especially in that movie. Man, yeah, he, he showed so many layers. So good. Oh, like I, I 
I, I didn't write him off, but I, you know, he's in Marvel movies, and it's like, okay, you're you're good for that, and you're like a Schwarzenegger, you know. My favorite fact about Dave Bautista that I learned is that as soon as just after he was cast in the Marvel movies in mm-hmm. the Guardians of the Galaxy, he immediately signed up for acting classes. He was like, if I'm oh. going to start doing these acting things, I'm going to start be- appearing in these movies. I want to make sure I'm able to do as good a job as I possibly can. That, see, that's that's great. And it shows. Yeah. It shows. If you, like, Blade Runner 2049, that opening scene is heart-wrenching, and it's all for, from and, him. And the short that he's in is great. I, I saw it once. I don't remember it. I Because I saw those before I watched the movie, and amazing. Mm. Okay. And even, even in Guardians of the Galaxy, he's very, very oh, good. Oh, yeah. No, he's great. I, uh, I, don't I can't say short... he's particularly good in Spectre. But he's barely in the movie. Yeah, I haven't seen that one. So, But at the same time, that's not always the actor's fault, as we know. No, of course not. So then, let's say we're making Blade Runner. We're making Blade Runner 2020, or whatever it is. Yeah. What do you want to do with this movie? How, what's the shape, like, the shape of the story remains the same? What are the important beats that you think need to happen for a remake? So for, for a remake on this, I do feel like the important beats that we have to hit are... Similar to the original, but just expounded upon more, like capitalism. Absolutely. At its core, it has to be a very human story. Yes. Um, so I do feel like these beats with with this burned out detective have to happen for his journey, right? Yeah. Like, I feel like, I mean, if we're going to go for it, that's his journey, right? Yeah. I think so, that we need to automate his journey as much as possible. Yeah. Part of the reason, again, I cut the sergeant, but I think part of the reason needs to be... He just gets an assignment, does the assignment, goes home. Sure. Gets the assignment, does the assignment, goes home. It's just the same just thing over and over again. Mm-hmm. Very machine-like. It's punching a ticket. And I actually would want to advocate for him it, within the story still being an active dude. Still being an active. Because in the movie, he's... He was retired. He has yeah. to be... I agree. Yeah. I think being active is, is more interesting. I think having him be retired gives us this extra layer of backstory that I think does nothing other than obfuscate the actual mystery we're trying to do. Right. Especially if his journey is learning empathy for these creatures. Because exactly. then it starts with him kind of already having empathy, but not. Like, right. like I quit because I don't want to do this anymore because I'm... It's dangerous and Yeah, it already started robots, with... But... It already started with... Man, killing things is really hard. Okay. Guess I'm coming back. Yeah. Yeah. So I feel like in this version, he needs to be an active, like, not just an active, but, like, the best. Yeah. Like, the- and I think, like, we, because st- we start with the Void Comp test of Leon. I'd love to start with the Void Comp test of someone else. Yeah. And as soon as the result came back as a positive, instantly Deckard kills him. Or yes. Her. Yeah. I agree with and that. It's just, yep. Uh, like a little green light goes off or red light goes off. Deckard acknowledges it. Bang. Not even not even an acknowledgement. Just a, you know. Yeah. I feel like that would be rather jarring. I pulled the gun from under the table for those of you listening at home. <laughs> uh, um, Kevin uh, mimes pulling a full Han Solo mm-hmm. pre, yeah. pre-edits. It could almost be an interesting intro if the replicant that he's interviewing knows and then breaks down. And has a moment, so we very clearly draw the line like, you're a replicant and you know and you're caught and you start crying in that moment. And it's almost like they're begging for their life, but then Decker doesn't care and, and just blows it, blows them away. Like, I feel like that would be a very jarring moment for, uh, to kind of draw the line of... I like that idea, but let's do this differently. Let's start okay. with the interview and we don't know what's happening. We don't know what the Voight comp test is testing. And then all of a sudden the other person's killed. 
Sure. I don't think the other person should be aware necessarily of what they're being tested for. I see. But here, okay. here, he, well, here, well, here's my changing the stakes a little bit is Deckard kills this person and then steps outside to then begin interviewing the spouse. Mm. And the spouse is like, where, where's Le- my, where, yeah. where's whomever, Leon, Rachel, sure. Allison, Paul, whatever, mm-hmm. where, where are them? Uh, it's your turn now. We need to begin. And it's just like, just going from one immediately to the other. And then that person starts breaking down because they know that found out mm. and there's no escape. Ah, like so that, that way we have the mystery of what's going on. And then we get to see the empathy of realization of what's about to happen. And it slowly reveals. Yeah. And that person's like, are they dead? Did you kill them? Are, are you going to kill me? What's happening? Why are you doing this? And so th- get a little bit of both. Sure. And also you get to establish that these two had other people. Like they also had, a, they aren't just this lone unit wandering through. They already had this other person that they found. Right. They weren't, they were just trying to live their lives. Very right. much like Bautista in yeah. 2049. Where Absolutely. He, he did nothing wrong. He was just a farmer. Yeah. Yeah. That's Which all. Which had nothing to do with what he was trained to do as a replicant, but that's what he chose to do. Because wasn't yeah. he supposed to be like a warrior or a soldier or something? I think he was kind of what Leon was, which was like a... Yeah. Know, like a... Because I think he talked machine. about like being in battle and just being overwhelmed. By, like all like having PTSD almost or something. Yeah. That's how I would do the opening. That's actually a really strong opening. I uh, like that a lot. And then uh, just like back to Deckard going through the motions until finally these four break him like systematically. Like each one of them something about them. Kind of shows him, which I feel like, I mean, if you want to talk about the, they only have a four-year lifespan and toddlers are, are rough, right? Yeah. So I do feel like each one of those, and they, they do it in this movie subtly, but I feel like it needs to be a little bit broader in that like Deckard really has to have no empathy at all. And yeah. they have to be the other end of the spectrum, which is yeah. completely empathetic and whatever in feeling they're feeling in the moment is the only feeling and whether it's anger sadness whatever it needs to like almost like a bipolar mood swing for them and i feel like that is an interesting way to a introduce why they only have a four-year lifespan because they're dangerous toddlers right? of course like with that kind of strength and agility or they're essentially supermen but with the met with the mind of children there's something I saw at one point. It's going to bother me now because I don't remember what this is from. But it was some robot or cyborg or something that as soon as it was introduced to like elements of humanity and was able to start experiencing emotions, like it got high off of emotions. Oh, interesting. And it like rage and anger was really powerful. Like it made this being feel more powerful and like it used those emotions to motivate it in one way of Oh, this is nice. Nice is good. I can enjoy feeling nice. Sure. Sadness. Oh, yes. I'm so devastated that you killed someone I liked. Yes, this is what sadness is. Huh. And it's just like those kind of extreme emotions, not true, hu- like, cause you haven't figured out how, what those emotions are supposed to make you feel. Right. All you know is that you're feeling them, but not processing them correctly. Exactly. And how to, ha- what the proper reactions are, how yeah. to handle them. And uh, I feel like that's what a replicant would be at four. Sure. But then as they move past it, because one of the things they do in 2049 is the aging problem has been uh, solved. solved. And Voight-Comp tests are still a thing, but basically what happens is after someone's killed, you can scan under their eyelid and they have a barcode. Right. Which kind of got hinted at in this movie when they're scanning the snake scale. 
yeah, there was a barcode. There was but like a serial number or something like a that. A serial number, thank you. I'm saying barcode, but yes, serial number. Yeah, and they had like uh, that. That is a fascinating addendum to it that everybody has one of those. Because you're manufactured. But almost like a Voigt-Kampf type test without the machine, right? Like there's yeah. like telltale signs. Right. right. Which is why it kind of could be dangerous, you know, for these, for Blade Runners. Sorry, I'm so, trying to remember the terminology with some of these uh, replicants. Yes. <laughs> it could even be interesting if Deckard had an incident where he accidentally retired a human, has no feeling for it. I but think is the in implication trouble. of why Deckard retired is because Deckard accidentally retired a human. Huh, I, I never picked up on that. I think that I heard that somewhere, like, that's why Deckard retired. Huh, okay. But I don't know that for certain. Yeah, it's never explicitly called No. That. But let's take a step back, because if sure. we're creating Deckard as this uh, object of, uh, this kind of, like, an, honestly, Deckard's the robot, because he's human, but, quote-unquote, but emotionally right. dead, we have four-slash-five replicants which emotion should each of them teach him? Obviously, the last one, Rachel, the emotion is going to be love. Right. What, but leading up to that, what are what are the emotions that you think each of them should bestow upon him, so to speak? Hmm. That's a very difficult one, um, but I a feel very like, valid one. And I feel like that would kind of be the story engine of the new movie. Yeah, excellent. Uh, absolutely. I almost wonder, so, I mean, I think the leader, of course, the, the Roy Batty, the Rutger Hauer, would probably absolutely be empathy. Yeah, okay, that's, I agree with that. That's the one that, even though he's batshit crazy, the lesson at the end of the day is empathizing with other people and what their experiences are. I agree with that. Um, and even though it, it, you feel like it's teaching fear, what it's actually teaching is, is fear is empathy. Exactly. Because you experience fear, you knew that you know now that others experience fear. Exactly, and you know what that fear is. Right. right? That's a big one. That's why I feel like he saved him. Absolutely. Let him, let him drop off, instead of let him drop off. You're a person now. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't want to say, you know, I don't, you're a person and I don't want you to die. Is yeah. kind of that lesson. Um, you experience fear. I know what that's like. Therefore, I feel for you. So mm-hmm. I, I agree. I think that's Roy. So that gives us uh, Pris, Leon, and Zora. Right. I feel like Zora, Zora might be, like, if we learn empathy through Roy, I feel like Zora might be kind of the instigation of fear just in general. Hmm. Because the reason why Zora's snake or whatever does, or anything, does what it does is because it's a fear of the whip. Okay. Like, you're doing what you're doing, not because you want to, but because... Oh, I see. You're being forced to out of fear of a worse situation. Okay. Because Zora, I think, is particularly tragic because Zora's a pleasure droid or whatever it is and then has to then escapes just to do the exact same thing on Earth. Right. Um, and it's for fear and... It's almost and, hiding in plain sight. Yeah, and of. Zora was like, I'd love to have a real snake, but I I can't... There's nothing I can do that would allow me to afford a real snake. Right. And, and she can even... Uh, I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm gonna scratch out that. Never mind. <laughs> Fair, Sorry. but but you get the idea. Yeah, I, I absolutely get the idea. Especially for her, it, it's definitely almost like it is the theme of living in fear for sure. Yeah, and almost a weird hiding in plain sight. So I feel like Zoro is like the beginning of the book end and Roy's the end. So like the, the introduction of fear and then what that fear should mean. Right. So fear and then empathy. Exactly. And the, and then obviously love again love at the end. So then we've got Leon and Pris. I feel like Leon. Is almost unrestrained anger. I agree with that. Just un- pure, 
unfiltered anger. And I think that that's important because if you want to be a functioning member of society, you can't just blindly accept everything that's handed to you. No, and also... Sometimes you're getting a raw deal and you should be angry about it. And at the same time, how you react to that. Like, what's... Yes. Like, because you you can't just throw a tantrum if you're getting the, the stick, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. that's... These are things that we learn as children, but at the same time, you know, like... It's anger, but it's also sometimes well-placed anger. Exactly. And directed anger. Exactly. Broad anger does nothing. Directed anger gives you drive and purpose. And so I wonder if it's almost like a, a directed anger at the human race, period, from here. Yeah. Where, where it's almost it like be. we are the superior... Replicants are the superior beings... Because of this, but we only we're we're shortchanged by this four year lifespan. Right, could almost be you know the the generational argument that's happening now, or or a race argument that a metaphor for those things. I don't necessarily um, want to paint one group as superior to another, but I would certainly say rage at a system which keeps sure some people under the heel and keeps others pushing down on the heel. Sure, that's that's very much kind of the direction I was okay. heading All right, cool. uh, in my meandering, stumbling kind of way. But, um, like, one of my problems is always like, well, they've been oppressing us for this long, we should be oppressing them. Yeah. Which I think is always kind of the villain argument, but if yeah. it's, they've been oppressing us for this long, we just want, we don't want them to pick us back up, we just want them to press, stop pressing down with the boot. Exactly. To take, we just want them to take their foot off our neck. Yeah, Exactly. Exactly. And I feel like that's that's where his anger comes from, almost yeah. in an extremist kind of way. I agree. Okay, good. Um, Anger's a good one. And then for... Uh, for Pris. For Pris, I wonder if it's joy. I, I wonder if it's the opposite end. I think that's I think that's a good one, too. I was thinking wonder, but I think joy is better. Yeah. Like, because Pris finds so much joy in all these little things over the whole thing. Like, she takes joy in the food, in the sure. light, in the toys, in the this, in the that. Mm-hmm. It's just... Oh my gosh, this is, I know that we only have so much to live, but all of a sudden, and I know we're scared and fearful of our lives, but look at all these amazing things we get to experience while we do. Right. And and that is, that is very much close to home to the original character, just being in wonder and awe of, of everything and yeah. almost like a child seeing it for the first time. Yes. And th- that very much could be where Pris just has something that she's playing with and then uh, eventually like she ends up having to defend herself. It's like, I don't want to die. Right. And then uh, Deckard kills her, and then all of a sudden he picks the thing up, and he finds joy in it too. Yeah, that could be fascinating. And like he take like he takes it. Like I mean, of course, it's like her good luck thing. Or yeah, something. of course, we're for sure turning him into a serial killer because a mark of a serial killer is he kills a bunch of people and then takes something <laughs> from each one of them. Yeah, but still, but I still like this idea. Society wise, that doesn't matter because they're robots, right? Sure, but yes, <laughs> if you look at it from his point of view, is yeah. what I'm saying. but. Uh, but but I mean like taking emotionally things with him, right? Oh, like yeah, like okay. he will take this thing from Pris and it will teach him joy. He's not actually going to take the snake. Not I'm actually going to take the misunderstood. But uh, like it it doesn't matter what like serial killers will keep teeth or whatever. Sure, or will take a thing. I don't yeah, know. Lock a hair. Whatever. Something like that. But that's not. But it's he's yeah. taking he's taking he's emotion. Taking the, the baggage. Yeah. yeah. But from Pris, he also happens to take this toy because you know what this is fun. Yeah, or this, this ball in a cup is still fun. Yeah, and also, I wonder, just to, an addendum to that, like not that he would take things from everybody, but like a memento or whatever. But I think more of like he finds joy in it too, in that he sees what she saw in it, right? Like mm-hmm. that kind of wonder, yeah, absolutely. 
Uh, and not is that what you were trying to say? And I completely missed it. Or no, that's what I was saying. Okay, sorry. <laughs> that said, I now really like the idea of because Roy does this really badass thing because Roy's dying. Like he's right. right at the end of his rope, and he's this whole thing is a desperate play. He's like, please, I don't want to die. Mm-hmm. What can we do to save my life? Mm-hmm. And Tyrell's like, even if we had something, it doesn't help you. It just helps the next generation. Right. Which I found interesting. Yeah, but, it's a, that's a that's a. Uh, comment on tech right there as yeah. well. So and but then like Roy's like like his whole body's kind of collapsing in on himself and he like drives the nail into yeah. his hand and so like kind of stay like he can focus on the pain and that way his body like still has the fight or flight like he can rely on the fight or flight to keep him going for a little bit right it releases the adrenaline to keep him alive essentially. I just kind of like this idea at the very last moment of like he saves Deckard. He's about to die. He takes the nail out of his hand and hands it to, to uh, Deckard and says, "You need this now more than I do." Deckard takes it. Roy dies. Oh, that's a fascinating moment. Yeah, and just like, well, what are you going to do with this nail? Yeah, like this was keeping literally this was keeping him alive, and he gave it to me. What do you do with that? Yeah, I mean it, that is that is definitely a powerful ending and it puts it in an objective way especially if we keep the unicorn little thing at the end because then there's deckards yeah right right but it's also like this guy was keeping an eye on him and he's still keeping an eye on him because we still don't know right exactly and that's why they go on the run presumably yeah yeah that's it pretty much all right i like that i think that's a movie oh yeah that's and it's definitely um lives in the same kind of to me good science fiction is has a message about yeah. society. Yeah, it's a comment on... By taking a look at the future, we're extrapolating things that are currently happening in society uh, to the extreme. Exactly. And I think that that's absolutely something that needs to be talked about. Yeah, and uh, and continuing in this remake, that that needs to be there in a big, bad way. Because I feel like that's... these Bringing the different emotions in is, a, is I feel like, the perfect engine for that. Yeah, I so. agree. Good. Cool. That's a movie. Let's get into casting. All right. Let's do it. All right. Starting with Rick Deckard, I presume? Sure. If you want. Unless you want to go backwards? <laughs> uh, no. I feel like we need to start with our, our, our robot man. Okay. Which, there's kind of an obvious casting for Rick Deckard. Yeah. Uh, so I'm curious if we went with the same person. I had Rami Malek. Uh, I did not, actually. Oh. Yeah. I actually, I went with um, David Harbour. Who's David Harbour? David Harbour is... He's been in a couple of things. His most notable is... I'm trying to remember the character's name. Hopper from Stranger Things. Okay. So he... I feel like... I feel like people have recommended this guy before. Probably. I might have. I'm, it's possible. I never remember who I recognize. Oh, that's right. And then I... I don't remember what it was, but I remember the person recommended them, and I kind of shat on them a little bit because he's Hellboy in the new Hellboy, and he's supposed to be really, really bad. Oh, yeah. I haven't seen it yet either. I've heard it was not good. Apparently, he's good in Stranger Things, but not especially good in anything else. Uh, I would say... But he's in a lot of things, which presumably means he must be a really nice guy or really good because he keeps getting all of these roles. I feel like he has the same kind of A, leading man chops, and B, also the cold killer that we need to turn into a human being. That's fair too. Which is also kind of why I picked Rami Malek again. Both solid choices. Because he's Mr. Robot, but he also does like Bohemian Rhapsody. Exactly. And if, I feel like he's both an excellent choice as well. Yeah. yeah, they're both good casting. Yeah. Alright, let's come that's, back to that. Well, well, let's yeah. see who we have for our, our Rachel. Okay. Because 
My Rachel's a, a, a bit of a left field pick, but I'll let you go first. Uh, mine is too, actually. Um, and my, my Rachel casting also ties into my casting for Tyrell. Oh, okay. As well. So for us, uh, for Rachel, I, I went with Constance Wu. Oh, okay. Uh, I feel like she can bring the vulnerability as well as that you would need to kind of teach that, that lesson. Probably. I could see that. Yeah. To teach the love lesson, if you will. That's, yes. That's where I was going with that. All right. That's not a bad pick. My Rachel is left field because I picked an actress named Ashley Tisdale. Oh, wow. Ashley, I was not expecting that at all. No, not at all. <laughs> Ashley Tisdale is... She's basically been a Disney actress for her entire career. Mm-hmm. Up to recently, she was in something called Carol's Second Act. Right. And I think that... Unfortunately, the role of Rachel as it exists now is really more someone who's very pretty to look at and for other people to react about. I don't think she has all that much to do. No. But I also think it's an opportunity to say, to to let someone display hidden depths that were previously unseen. And for someone who's kind of been stuck doing Disney stuff their whole life, I think that this is an opportunity. So, which means that a lot of adults will kind of be like, where do Ooh. I know her from? Yeah. So we'll be kind of fascinated with like, who is this? But while simultaneously being like, she's doing a really good job. Right. Because she's never been bad as far as I can tell. Like she's always been able to have a lot of fun. But like, but I, with, I, I think yeah. this is just a good role for someone to like move on from one stage of their life to another. And so that's why I thought it'd be a fun pick for that. I see. Okay. Not uh, necessarily tied to that. But sure. that's kind of what I was thinking. And I feel like this is an opportunity to give Rachel a, a broader... Sense. I I almost get the sense that she was just almost like a housewife the whole yeah. thing well, until she like kills. She's never done anything. Yeah, exactly. And it's, well, I have all these memories, but they're not mine, they're not which means that I've personally never done anything. Exactly. Um, until the moment where she shoots Leon. Right. Him. And that's that's kind of her breaking moment. Yeah. Um, not a, there is no real age discrepancy. Constance Wu was born in 82. Ashley Tisdale was born in 85. David Harbour's 44. Rami Malek is, I think, 38. Okay. So, because they'll sometimes use that to, like, for optics. But honestly, the optics in this aren't particularly bad. No, seven, all... Like, seven years, even eight, nine years, not as bad at this point. Mm-hmm. It's not like they're dating a 20-year-old. No, that would, yeah, that would be going a little too far. And, uh... Maybe for some of the replicants, a twenty-year-old. I don't know, but I do have a twenty-year-old for um for press. Oh, okay. What I think I would like to do is I think I would like to do. No, but that's the young one, the old one. I don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. I was leaning towards Ashley Tisdale and David Harbor, but I don't want to do that because it's, just, well, it's like it's... a nine-year age difference. Ah, uh, I mean, it's not the end of the world. And, and it's 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 not it's bordering on eh, maybe a little creepy, but it's yeah. not. I, I mean, don't think the, it the is. whole aspect of this is troublesome because if replicants only are a max of four years old, it doesn't matter how old the human is; it's bad. Right, exactly, and it, and it doesn't. Yeah. So the it's age a, isn't a huge, it, but it's also like. Yes, I understand that this person doesn't look, look that, but it's like the same Twilight problem of he may look 17, but he's 200 years old. This is a problem. Right. Uh, 
So I'm kind of trying to avoid something like that, but I think when you're dealing with a replicant who has a max age of four, I think you're stuck either way. Sure, and it's a genetically engineered adult. Yeah. With a, with the mind of a child, essentially, but or or right. the development, we'll say the development of the child. They know what their job is. Yeah. And they know how to do it. But... So my inclination is to do David Harbour and Ashley Tisdale. I'd be absolutely open to that. If that makes sense. Yeah. Okay? I, I think it makes sense, especially if we're, like we were just discussing, if they are, you know, truly just a genetically engineered adult, they start life at this age and they end life at this age, essentially. Because yeah. you don't go beyond four years. Right. That being said, they're, you know, that's, yeah. you don't get to age. No. And I also like the idea of the, theoretically, the younger presenting person as being older than the older presenting person which i think would just be funny oh absolutely uh i don't know where in this script that would work because i don't think that actually works for anybody because the only (laughs) other possibility is pris and roy and roy's literally about to die which means he must be older than pris but like that's the other place i would see it but theoretically like pris could be about to die also they could both be four years old they could be and just not she's not he's showing signs she's not but she but she will soon like She's showing the signs that he showed two months ago. Right. Something like something, that. Something along those lines, yeah. yeah. Uh, but that's my thought for the first two. Yeah, I'd absolutely be open to that. Cool. Then that leads me to Roy. <laughs> okay. You went first for Rachel. So my Roy is an actor named David Anders. Okay, I'm uh, not familiar with David Anders. So I know David Anders specifically from Zombie. Oh, okay. Where he plays uh, the bad guy. And I'm going to show you a picture of him in that show now. Oh, wow. Man, he's like perfect. Wow. So he definitely has the look yes. of Roy, which is kind of why I initially thought of him. But he's been around for a while. He's an iZombie. He's in The Revenant. He's in Heroes. Okay. Uh, he was an alias. I mean, he Maybe also that's is where I know him from, yeah. Sorry. 38. Mm. But, like, he's excellent in iZombie. He, he's good in... A lot of different things. He's in Once Upon a Time. He's in Stalker. He's in Criminal Minds. He's been around. Okay. And he definitely has the look, like I said, because, I mean, he, that's not his actual hair color. He's actually a brunette. But, like, in iZombie, he's going around with the bleach blonde hair. And sure. I just kind of think it's funny if... It's like a direct casting or something. Literally direct casting. Yeah. That's... But I also just think he's great. And he's also like is capable of hidden depths. Yeah. Now, I think he's great. Um, Who mine, did you have? Mine was a little left field, too. But I think this person, they might be a little old. But uh, I felt that they could bring kind of the almost impish insanity to the role of uh, of Roy. So I went, I went with Michael Sheen. Oh, I can see that. Michael Sheen would be very good. Ooh, Michael Sheen would be very good. I thought... He's almost like this. Oh, I'm thinking of a different person. Oh, Michael Sheen. Wait, <laughs> the British Michael Sheen. Yeah, no, I'm thinking of uh, who's the guy who played Zod in the new Superman movies? Zod. Oh, Michael Shannon. I'm thinking of Michael Shannon. Oh, okay, he would and be great too. That's who I was thinking of. Michael <laughs> Sheen. No, <laughs> he was. Uh, did you watch? Um, Good Omens. I have only seen the pilot where so. he's playing like the. Oh, I'm. A, yeah. Fee and, and whatever. And that's kind of your pick for... I mean, I don't know what he's done so, where he's, like, more evil. I but. have seen him in other things where he he can turn it on. And I can't actually draw from the specific thing that I saw. But I'd seen him, I'd seen him play a villainous role. I think he has the insanity in him 
to kind of go to these extreme bipolars. My my reason for picking him though is you don't expect it. It's you don't you see him and you don't expect that this is where he's gonna go. You know what I mean? It's almost like a hiding in plain sight. I would agree with that notion if he was as truly villainous as we want him to be. Right. But I think for our version, I think we need to initially see him and think he's the villain and then learn that he's not really as bad as we think he is. I feel like we need to move in the opposite direction as the one you're pitching. Okay. And I I agree with that, especially with the other folks that I looked at casting. (laughs) Okay. So yeah, we should, I feel, forgive me, David Anders? David Anders. Yeah, we should go with David Anders. Hey, the fact that you pulled up a name is better than me. I would have been like, the guy you said. The guy you said, yeah. Fans of the show will know that I do that. And I always <laughs> feel bad, but I'm bad with names. That's okay. <laughs> uh, um, so then let's talk about Pris. Okay. My Pris is very young, but I went first with the last one. So go ahead. Okay. Uh, from from Pris, for me, I felt like uh, finding somebody who is vulnerable, but also could, in theory, be badass and doing flips and stuff too at the end where it would be somewhat believable uh i actually i went with zoe kravitz zoe kravitz is not that young no wait what are you sure i i'm not she's 30 okay yeah i feel like that's the right age group oh okay i went with someone 10 years younger than that oh okay i got nothing against zoe kravitz zoe kravitz is great yeah i think zoe kravitz would be an excellent press she definitely can bring the the insanity into she is it. She's six months younger than me. <laughs> she's in Divergent. She's in Fantastic Beasts. She's in mm-hmm. Mad Max. She's in Big yeah. Little Lies. And the Mad Max actually was the thing that I looked at that went, oh yeah, she can she can really, really dial it up as an actress. Like She's very versatile. Yes. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I picked her is she can go from vulnerable to badass. That's and true. Like, and that's important. Um, the actress I picked is, I went for, I leaned a little bit more on the weirdness. Okay. Because the other thing that Pris is that she like kind of totally fits in with this world of like weird ballerina puppet monsters (laughs) and like, oh yeah, no, you're a weirdo and it's great. So this actress uh, was in Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Peculiar Children. Okay. She's in Kick-Ass 2. All right. She is named Ella Purnell. So I went with very young because I think she's... Oh, wow. She's 23. Very young. Yeah. Okay. She looks younger than I think she is, but 23 is still very young. Yes, I agree with uh, that. But she also has a very long IMDb. Well, you know, when you've been working a long time. Um, child actress. And she's the young Jane body double. She's in... She's Dolce and Kick-Ass 2. She's in ah. Sweet Bitter as Tess. That's where I know her from. She just strikes me as the sort of person who can appear innocent, be and, weird and creepy. And also dial it in. <laughs> yeah. So that that was my idea for Pris. I'm perfectly happy to go with Zoe Kravitz because Zoe Kravitz is amazing. And because I'm I'm sure she's perfectly capable of just like doing those things where like kind of like that weird help, head, head tilt. Twitch, yeah. And then all of a sudden you're like, okay, something's off with this one. Uh-huh. And then the, the snap moves and things like that. Is, yeah. You know, I can the see that. The inconsistent movement. But at the same time, Ella Purnell looks like she can really, really do that eerily. I yeah. Like she can bring that in. I'd, I'd be happy to switch it up to her, too. Okay, well, then let's um, see. But. I mean, like I said, 
<laughs> You've done this enough times that you, you pull in good people also, so I'm always very happy to go with your casting. Sure, no. Well, the idea is let's let's make an awesome thing, right? Yeah, let's, so, let, yeah, it's but, I, about... but I also try to do a mix. So sure. just in case one of us happens to get both of the next ones, which there's a good chance I'm going to, mm. okay. just saying. Maybe. That... Uh, I'm, we'll come back to Pris and whoever has gotten more up to that point, well, that's the person. Sure. Okay. Because again, both are great. Yeah. Zoe Kravitz is a, is a phenomenal actress. But let's talk about Leon. Okay. Uh, so my Leon, I needed someone big, I needed someone tough, I needed someone who could be a little bit of that emotion, but then also mostly just like, just a large gentleman. I see. So I went with Mike Coulter. Oh, Who did. is Luke Cage. Yes. Interesting. I went in the probably exact opposite direction. Fascinating. And cast Adam Driver. Why? Because he is a, uh, like, kind of a creepy dude. Um, I'll give that to you. mostly ties into his performance as Kylo Ren. Okay. Which I feel like is almost Leon, right? Like, sure. he, he's young. He's impressionable. He's at mind. Not at oh, heart. okay. So you were leaning so into the anger. I was leaning into the anger side where he's just kind of this unstoppable angry machine. Mm. Um, and I feel like Adam Driver, especially <laughs> the, those eyes. And while I know Adam Driver doesn't have the same piercing eyes as Brian James was, I feel like he can roll that really quick where his eyes get really big and intense. And I agree with that too. And I, Think, I think that's really good for what we ended up doing with the character. I'm leaning more towards Mike Coulter because if you were designing someone to be big to lift 400 pound armaments and put them places, you would design them to look like a Mike muscular. Coulter. Sure. Regardless of what they develop and the emotions that they pull, in the same way that Dave Batista looks that way and then went very tender and soft. Mm-hmm. Mike Coulter could take that those same experiences and go the other way and just become angry. Sure. But they were both designed to be big, lifty guys. Right, exactly. That's why I would be more tempted to go with Mike Coulter. I agree with that. I love the idea of Adam Driver because he absolutely can pull the anger. That's no question. He's excellent at that. And he's a great avatar for the audience of being like, oh, I'm so angry. Why isn't this the way I want it to be? Exactly. Which I feel like Which is... he's excellent at. Yeah. But that's Kylo Ren. Yeah, it is. It is. Now that you mention it, it is. It is essentially we'd be casting him to play Kylo Ren. Yes, yeah, just just a ball of teenage anger. Now right. let's go with let's go with Coulter. He's which we... brings us to poor Zora, because <sighs> the the easy implication is to just go with someone who's like, oh, just super sexy because it's the sex worker. Mm-hmm. I didn't. I didn't do that. Mm. I went with an actress named uh, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, Denai Gurura. Mm. I am not familiar with that one either. You are. She's a Koya in Black Panther. Ah, okay. So I want someone who is capable of being very sexy, but then like, like, yeah, that's what I was designed to be, but I'm owning it and going this other way because that's not who I want to be. Right. Someone who you could see having a snake and then having that snake attack people. Sure. Someone who is scary, but on her terms. Exactly. Okay. That's fair. That's my logic for Zora. That's a that's actually not not a bad approach. Mine was I did and not necessarily go for the <laughs> not necessarily for the sexy, but for the edgy. And I figured Zora was kind of a smaller role. So yeah. I, I went with Kristen Stewart, who has been lately dialing it in with that kind of look and you know. I'll do you one better. If we go with uh Denai Garura for Zora, can we make Kristen Stewart Pris? Yeah, sure. 
Because I feel like she's like can do real weird. I thought so too, and I was actually on the fence on placement for between my casting of Zoe Kravitz and and Kristen Stewart. I was actually like, I don't know which one would fit which more. I mean, Zoe Kravitz is really so, good. Geez. Zoe Kravitz, I think, would make a, an interesting Deckard. Hmm. The that's a fascinating. That's an idea. Why don't we do that? Yeah, we can. That's I got, definitely... Uh, I got nothing against that. I don't either. That's definitely an interesting twist. She can definitely play the, the gamut of emotions. Yeah. But then, that being said, do we keep our Rachel? Our yep. love interest as Rachel? Sure, why not? Okay. Doesn't matter. Just a question to ask, that's yeah, all. Yeah, I think it's worth asking the question, but... Yeah, doesn't matter to me either. Just... I like our Rachel, and I think I think that's interesting. Mm-hmm. I like it. It's weird. It is weird, which is Also, perfect. Kristen Stewart's a really good press. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't even think about that. Good choice. My joke now would be uh, we cast whoever the guy was in Twilight because he'd be a good Deckard also. Oh, uh, uh, Pattinson? Yeah, Robert Pattinson. The new Batman? Yeah, we cast Batman as Deckard because that would totally work, but I think Zoe Kravitz is better. I agree with that. Actually, I'd rather have Zoe Kravitz than than any of the choices. There we go. Yeah. Perfect. Are you happy with that? I'm sorry? Are you happy with that? I am happy with that. Cool. Let's move on. Then I have two more actor roles. Okay. I have Tyrell and I have Gaff. I have I have two more after I have four more. So I have okay. Gaff, Tyrell, I recast JF Sebastian and also the Captain, Captain Bryant. Which one was JF Sebastian? The guy who helped who brought in uh Pris and uh, oh, Patty, the guy who I lives com- in the Bradley. Yeah, yeah, I completely forgot about him. I totally should have recast him. Which oh, yeah. the movie did too, kind of. That's that was his role in the movies. He was just this kind of quiet dude who yeah. got forgotten and left behind. Yeah. Oh, I can't believe I. <laughs> uh, I mean, I feel sorry for him the most in this movie. I do he's, too. He's the one who's like he he's got a brilliant mind, but because he's got a disease, it's almost like a pre-existing condition. You can't move off world. Yeah. For you, him, he's almost too human. Yeah. Yeah. You know, very sympathetic. He, he just, and that's the thing. He just needs this human connection, which he just can't find. So he makes people be, so he can have this connection. Mm-hmm. And eventually the irony is the connection that he makes is with the two robots. Yeah. So. Oh, I'm sad I didn't recast him. <laughs> uh, but excellent, good on you. Let's uh, let's jump around then. Let's sure. do uh, let's do Gath, Sebastian, okay. Tyrell, Sergeant. Unless you, that's fine. Yeah. So for Gath, who did you have? Uh, for Gath, I went with the actor who's uh, actually portrayed a robot on television before. I went with Michael Ely. Tell me about Michael Ely. Michael Ely is a very interesting actor. For me, I. Saw him originally in the show Almost Human with Carl Urban, where it's kind of actually a similar Blade Runner scenario where each police, there are police officers and each one has a robot assigned to them as a partner. Okay. And uh, Michael Ely played the robot. Interesting. Um, he has a very interesting look to him. I felt that he would be perfect for Gaff, who is kind of like. Almost a mishmash of Los Angeles as a person. Yeah, I got nothing against like, that. He, he's just, you know. Sure. He speaks many different languages. Does he's, he really? Yeah. Dang. Oh, not, no, not Michael Ely. The oh, character oh, of the Gaff. Character. Got it, got it, got it, got it, got it. <laughs> the character of Gaff. Oh, speaks yes. many languages. He's very street smart. He's very, I just feel like uh, Michael Ely will fit in perfectly in that in that 
role. And it almost, uh, he has this also piercing look as well of like, yeah, you know, I'm watching you. I mean, his image also... is just up on my screen right now, but he definitely feel like he's watching you. Right yeah, now. I agree. Uh, my gaff, I just recast Edward James almost. Yeah. He's, he's really great. He's really great. Um, I mean, because I think he's great, um, and it's because you look at him, and I didn't necessarily recognize him as Edward James almost because he looks completely different now than yeah. he did then. Well, not only that, but he's got, like, contacts and a beard. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just, I've always really liked him. I don't think that – I didn't think we'd end up going with him because I also think Michael Ely's probably the better casting. Mm-hmm. But also I was like, yeah, be super interesting if he's just, like, this avatar of humanity, as you said. Yeah. But it's just the same guy throughout. But yeah. I think you're probably right. We probably need to go with Michael Ely. We could, but I mean, there is there is nobody. I mean, I was I am not opposed to recasting almost because there is nobody who kind of embodies Los Angeles more than him. I mean, That's true. Fair well, let's go with Michael Ely. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so now, tell me who you had for JF Sebastian. So for JF Sebastian, I wanted somebody who was just what we had just discussed about. Him, yeah, yeah. Who who really was this kind of like overly human, just searching for a contact, and also kind of like meek. Yeah, and, good. And depressed. So you so, cast Michael Sheen again? Uh huh. I good. did. All right. No, uh, I actually I went with Elijah Wood. Oh yeah, no, perfect. That I totally felt, works for me. Yeah, I felt Elijah Wood would be perfect for J.F. Sebastian. Elijah Wood is so great. He is. He does. He he plays a really good confused person. Uh, exactly. Uh, Just can, overwhelmed. There's too much happening. Which I feel like is is perfect for this character. I mean, if you look at where he lives in this kind of squalor, like supposedly he's this brilliant engineer. Yeah. But he he lives in squalor, and I can see that as almost like this is the easiest for me. I don't have to worry about X, Y, and Z. I don't have to worry. I want human connections, but I I can't do it. Yeah, right. Like that's kind of how I view him. Is he doesn't brilliant mind, but doesn't necessarily have the life skills or the street smarts, if you right. will. Like I feel like that's that character. I um, agree. I I think that that's good. Yeah. Good mm-hmm. reading, good casting. Thank you. Then let's talk about Tyrell. Let's talk about Tyrell. I had initially had someone else for Tyrell, and I don't remember who I cast, because I ended up replacing them mm. with Giancarlo Esposito. Oh, that's good. Someone who you can't quite decide if they're good or bad. Mm-hmm. You know that they are. They are inherently bad, yes. But, like, it's, they're probably bad, but they're just charming enough that you're like, are they, though? Yeah. I mean, because um, Jared Leto, he's definitely bad. Right. There's no question. He's yes. bad. He's evil, yeah. And also the character he plays is bad. Right. <laughs> um, no, I, I'm all on board with Jared Leto being evil in person. Yeah. Um, but, but um, <laughs> in the yes, in the film, his character is also is bad. unquestioningly bad. I feel like Tyrell is perfect in that where he believes... What he's doing, you know, with the whole benefit hazard conversation that they have, what he is doing is a benefit to humanity. He believes his own hype. Yes. He think he is the villain who thinks he's the good guy. Absolutely. Who did uh, you have? So for me, I went actually in another kind of mad scientist way. I went with B.D. Wong. B.D. Wong? Yes, B.D. Wong. He... His, he's played a number of different mad scientists, uh, but most... L- recognizably in Jurassic Park and then later in Jurassic World. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. Uh, that's right. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's the genetic engineer who starts playing God. And he <laughs> does it so well. Good. He that's interesting. He does it so well. Cool. Good. Sold. 
BD yeah. Wong. I love it. I think that's a great choice. I love when people pull in actors I'm tangentially aware of, but like, oh yeah, no, that's a great idea. Yeah, good, mm. good choice. He's a, he's a great like, just plays the cerebral scientist who believes he's right. You know, who believes that there's nothing wrong with what he's doing, and that's good. The one who skirts e- ethics. We'll put it that way. Yeah, <laughs> which is perfect for Blade Runner because you know rampant capitalism does skirt ethics. So. And he was the love interest in Disney's Mulan. Oh, was he really? Yeah, he's Shang oh, in that's uh, hilarious. Mulan. <laughs> I didn't remember who that character was, but uh, he's a love interest. That's great. Oh, that's I just think it's funny. Yeah. All right. Uh, so that leaves us with the sergeant, who yeah. you have. Captain Bryant, who I just... I... Captain... Oh, the character's name is Captain Bryant. I'm like, who? Wait, wait, so wait, what wait. actor's first name is Captain? <laughs> you, his name is... Uh... Anyway, I missed that bit. Uh, so I just... I, I threw in Joel Murray. As Captain Brian, because I figure, like, he's a pretty good... He's in Mad Men. Uh, he's Bill's brother. Yes. Um, he He's really, really good at that kind of, like, old, gruff... Yeah, he'd captain, be good. Hard-drinking captain. Yeah. Like, so, yeah, you know, in terms of recasting him... I've seen him in things before. I've seen him do comedy before. I yeah, Same. I, I, I used to have drinks with him all the time at iowa west yeah great guy. that's where i saw him perform comedy yeah, exactly yeah, he's great he's amazing cool so. good love it i think that's a great idea right good all, right. all good people great then that brings us to writer and director now i have a writer director oh as opposed to a writer and a director you do too so do i oh really yeah. Ooh. Ooh. okay so all right it's a battle of the auteurs here Who's indeed make blade runner mine mine's a little bit on the nose like i could see you looking at my choice and being like well that person's kind of done their version of this already. Mm. But I think they've done their version of this because they couldn't do Blade Runner. Ah, I want to okay. see what they do with Blade Runner. Mm. And that's Spike Jones. Oh, okay. That is a fascinating choice. The version that Spike... Because Spike Jones is a very well-known, well-regarded music video director, but Absolutely. he's also a very, very good director in his own right. Yeah. I mean, I thought her was very good. I agree. And there are a lot of aspects of her that were then borrowed in Blade Runner 2049. Absolutely, yeah. Which is part of the reason why I was like, well, if Spike Jones was already halfway there, then just let's let him go all the way there. Let's give him Blade Runner and see what he does with it. Yeah, I mean, if there, Spike Jones can already make a very, very stylized world. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's something he's very good at. Um, I think I think that's an excellent choice. My choice is on the nose in a different way. All right. So my guy, also my writer-director, auteur, has also... Uh, worked in the science fiction field and has done things that are also explored themes in Blade Runner. They're good themes. They really That's are. That's why we keep making movies with these exactly, themes. Because they're problems. Um, so I went with uh, Neil Blomkamp, actually. Okay, tell me about Neil Blomkamp. So Neil Blomkamp, he uh, got his start with District 9. Yes. Uh, and then also went on to do Elysium, which I feel like is kind of also already a Blade Runner style movie. That's true. And I feel like he handles society issues as well as human issues within science fiction realm really well. Yeah, you're not wrong. And I would love to see what he does with with, with Blade Runner. Ooh, he's a good choice. Yeah. And he, uh, I think Chappie is, I haven't seen it, but I've heard it's, it's kind of close to, you know, Killer Robot. I've heard it's very bad. Oh, have you? Yeah, I've heard that it's just 
awful. Oh, really? I've heard, see, I, some of the nerds that I know who from who used to write Star Trek are like, oh man, Chappie was great. And I was like, ah, oh, check it out. <laughs> I've heard that unless you're the nerd that writes Star Trek, you don't enjoy Chappie. Yeah, well. But I also heard the same thing about Elysium, and it sounds like you like Elysium. I enjoyed the themes in Elysium. I didn't necessarily think that Matt Damon was a good lead in Elysium. No, probably not. Um, I, I liked the idea I felt that that's one that could probably do with a remake. But Ooh, I'd be I, down to talk about that at some yeah, point. Yeah, I'd have to rewatch it, but I, I would have to watch it for the first time. Oh, there you go. Because I agree that District Nine is very, very, very good. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, very good, and it also deals with a lot of these themes. Mm-hmm. Um, and Elysium too was like a really big, you know, one percent versus the rest of us kind of movie. And I feel like the sum of Neil Blomkamp's films so far. <laughs> Equal Blade Runner, and I'd like that's to see. Probably true. I'd like to see what he does to explore these themes. Oh, that's tough. I like both these options. Yeah, same. Always <laughs> <laughs> flip a coin. <laughs> we could. The reason why I'm more tempted to go with Spike Jones is because I don't want this to be overproduced. I want it to be underproduced. That's because I feel like that's what makes Blade Runner interesting: is that it's dark. Things are shitty. Yeah. And they don't look futuristic. At all. No, it's definitely dystopia. Yeah, the only thing that's futuristic is Tyrell Corporation. Yes. Uh Because that's where all the money and power is. Which is very indicative of what we're going through in our world right now. Absolutely. And I feel like that's something Spike Jones can do, is just just like on-the-ground, street-level directing, as opposed to like... Something like Elysium or Chap, and even Chappie kind of has that, but it's still kind of this high technology thing. Exactly. Part of the reason these movies have as high a budget as they do is because of the special effects. Agreed. But I don't want to rely on special effects. I want it to all feel real. I I am a a huge advocate of practical effects, and anything that you can do in camera, I am all about. So, all right, let's go with Spike Jones. And I've watched some interesting things about specifically Chappie and how they did that in camera, and they're mm-hmm. super interesting, and I'll send those to you. Yeah, yeah. But that's why I'm more tempted to go with Spike Jones. No, I, I agree with, with that. Neil Blomkamp is really, I mean, he hits the the head on, of the sci-fi spectrum where, yeah, we are overproducing this massive world. And I, and I agree with what you're saying about Blade Runner, is it really does need to kind of be this dark, Boots on the ground, dystopian. they have technology, yeah. we don't. yeah. Exactly. We are the technology. And, and and guess what? Everybody at the top of the pyramid has the money, and mm-hmm. they're just going to keep producing these things, even though they're Ill- illegal and hazardous to our health. And... We literally live in a world where the vast majority of our characters are designed to make life easier for the rich. That's and that's that's the a... humans and replicants alike. So there you go. As of as of November 2019, we have many of those products in our home as well. Yeah. Alexa, iPhone, you know. Yeah. So let me take you through our cast. All right. We have the remake of Blade Runner, which probably should not ever be done, but we know it will be eventually. Yeah. Rick Deckard will be played by Zoe Kravitz. Roy Batty will be David Anders. Rachel will be Ashley Tisdale. Pris will be Kristen Stewart. Leon will be Mike Coulter. Zora will be Denai Gurira. I didn't hear it said out loud. I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing that. Tyrell will be B.D. Wong. Gath is Michael Ely. J.F. Sebastian will be Elijah Wood with the sergeant named... Uh, Captain Bryant. Captain Bryant will be Joel Murray. All this will be written and directed by Spike Jones. That is our Blade Runner remake. So, one last question for you before I get into plugs. 
what is your so do androids dream of electric sheep coming up with our animal totem thing that represents us what kind of animal are you gonna get that's a rough one lion Ooh, that's a bold stance to put out there. That is a bold stance to put out there. All right. It's power play. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> going big. I'm for sure going to get a dog. Just trying to be nice to everybody and just so eager to please be my friend. <laughs> please? See please? my tail wagon? Yeah. <laughs> is that food? <laughs> you know how much I like food. I do like food. <laughs> a Food's lot. great. <laughs> uh, cool. So uh, it's been a couple of weeks. What's sure. going on in your world? Uh, well, we're, I'm beginning to work on demos for a, a feature film uh, as a composer. So first first shot at that. All um, good. If anyone's listening and needs a composer, Kevin Mosteller, look yeah, him up. Thank you. Um, you can on... contact me at kevin at borderlinecriminal.com. Good. If you want uh, scoring services or any other post-production. <laughs> How about social media? Got any of that? Uh, yeah. On Instagram, I am at kevmoststeller. And that's about it these days. Uh, I kind of hang out on Facebook every now and then, but I, I've really, <laughs> really lost my taste for Twitter since since our commander in chief has taken it. <laughs> yeah, but I like so. everyone's hot takes on it. Yeah, that's fun. For they're me. they're entertaining to watch from a distance. Yeah, I mean, I'm not gonna <laughs> that kind of disengage, not participate. But yeah, I mean, yeah. it's it's the hot takes and the Twitter might be my source of news. That's not healthy. Yeah. Um, that's that's kind of why I uh, unplugged but, from it, too. But, but at Kevbo Stellar. Yes. You can find me on Twitter there as well, but I don't really use it as, cool. as often. So purely Instagram. Got it. Yeah. If you're interested in following me, I'm at Sam Gash, just on Twitter, S-A-M-G-A-S-C-H. Instagram, if you want to follow the podcast, it is at Ideal Remake, same as Twitter, at Ideal Remake on Twitter as well, or join us on Facebook, Ideal Remake or Ideal Remake Podcast to know when all the latest episodes are coming out. If you want to take some time out of your life and leave me a five-star review, tell you what, I will go through and read all the five-star reviews that we've been getting uh, on iTunes. That's something I keep saying I'm going to do, and I haven't done it yet. But starting in the next episode, I will do it probably if I remember. I'm recording it tomorrow. Let's see how, how this goes. Uh, <laughs> it's 24 hours, man. Yeah, let's see how. Let's see if any of that sticks in five minutes. <laughs> um, but yeah, Kev, thanks so much for coming back again and for suggesting this episode. This was a good idea. Oh my goodness, thank you so much. This and has I, actually been a real treat for me. I, I love Blade Runner. It's probably my favorite film. Thank so. you for loaning me the the quintessential perfect Blade Runner. Yeah, yeah, yeah you're welcome. I like it. I like it a lot. Uh, so yeah, good. What's your What's your favorite quote from the movie? Oh man. Um, I mean, everybody goes for the tears and rain speech. That's it's so good. It's so good, so good, and supposedly mostly improvised. Really, by Rucker Hauer? Yeah, supposedly that that was they were just kind of like get into the moment and let him go, and that's you know that's lost, fantastic. Lost like tears and in, in rain, all those moments in time. 